Well, good morning and welcome to our third installment of our One Nation Under God series, where we're discovering what it's like to be a member of two kingdoms. One, the civil kingdom or political kingdom in which we are accustomed to uh, participating through taxation and voting and political platforms and all those good things, along with being members of the kingdom of heaven following Jesus Christ in the real world. And what we're going to be talking about today in particular is the idea of how to be a good citizen and what kind of the the crux of being a good citizen is in both kingdoms, and also the idea of uh, how to handle conflict between the two kingdoms as we're members of both. So I'd invite you to just bow your head and pray with me for a moment as we kind of hear from God's word about uh, what he has to say about being members of both of those kingdoms. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to spend time in your word this morning. Thank you for the chance to explore my citizenship in both kingdoms, the kingdom of this world or the political kingdom and the kingdom of heaven that you've given me access to and membership in because of the grace of Jesus. And so this morning, God, as we explore this idea, what does it mean to be a good citizen in, uh, in the United States of America? And also, what does it mean to be a good citizen of heaven in the event that those two kingdoms come into conflict? So I pray that you inform us now through your word and just clarify and sharpen our skills as members, as citizens of two kingdoms. In your name we pray, together we say amen and amen. Well, I invite you to, to take a peek at Romans chapter 13 with me, and I'd like to read a portion of that from uh, an excerpt from last week's message where we looked at the message version of the Bible written by Eugene Peterson. Uh, this is a particular excerpt from Romans 13, focusing on verses 1 through 3. And here's what the scripture, the scripture says there. It says, Be a good citizen. All governments are under God. Insofar as there is peace and order, it's God's order. So live responsibly as a citizen. If you're irresponsible to the state, then you're irresponsible with God. And God will hold you responsible. Duly constituted authorities are only a threat if you're trying to get by with something. Decent citizens should have nothing to fear. And as we're talking about citizenship in the United States of America in particular, the instruction from God becomes pretty clear. He wants us to be good citizens in the United States. He wants us to participate in the political system um, in a way that recognizes him, recognizes that it's God's order. Now, in these days and times, especially if you pay attention to the media and specifically social media, you'll find that there's a great deal of unrest among the political parties that are out there, and particularly its leaders who are up for re-election or trying to be elected for the first time. You're going to see a lot of personal digs in the media, and you're going to see a lot of difficulty as uh, people try to work together, um, sometimes even working against each other to try to set policy for us and to, uh, to put new rules and new laws in place. But one thing is clear, in the very end, no matter which side of the aisle you vote on, we are called to vote and we are called to be citizens of the United States in such a way that we participate. We do not withdraw from uh, the political scene in the United States. And at the same time, we don't place our faith in the political system in the United States. We place our faith in God and we follow him and we obey him. Uh, part of the way by obeying the leaders that have been elected um, to serve in government over us. 
And so we established that as kind of a baseline this morning, uh, the idea that God has called us to obedience, obedience, obedience to him through Jesus, and how a portion of that, a significant portion of that obedience, living a life following God's direction, comes through following the, the direction of our government. Uh, and, and, and in the end, we can say it kind of clearly like this, when we obey leaders in the civil realm, we demonstrate that God is the one who made the government in which they serve, and that we are obeying him by obeying them. So you could very clearly say that following the directives that your government gives you, following the rules and a rule of law and order uh, that the government puts in place is an act of worship. And, uh, and in, in, in most cases, that's easy to navigate. We can pretty clearly say that in most cases, if we obey the law and follow even the spirit of the law um, through, uh, through even the letter of the law, um, that, you know, that we're only going to receive good things from that, that our lives will be blessed by doing that according to the scriptures that we've read. But here's a provocative question. What if those two kingdoms, what if the government of this world, the United States government or a state government or a local municipality compels us to do something that goes against our membership in the kingdom of God? What if there is an overt uh, breach um, of, uh, of, of rule there uh, where the government tries to uh, make us follow a rule that uh, flies in the face of everything we know as followers of Jesus? Well, we're going to answer that question by taking a second look and just a kind of review of the difference between the two kingdoms. In the left-hand kingdom, some theologians call it, uh, this political world that we participate in, uh, the objectives, main objectives of that left-hand kingdom, as you might recall, are to restrain evil uh, and external violence uh, against us, to protect us uh, bodily and to protect those goods or those uh, properties that we own. That's the main chief purpose uh, that God has set apart the left-hand kingdom for. You can see kind of evidence of this further along in Romans chapter 13. And then on the right hand, if you take a look at the right-hand kingdom of the kingdom of God, the main purposes of the right-hand kingdom here on earth uh, before Jesus returns are to preach and teach the good news of Jesus, to preach and teach the gospel, and to administer the sacraments, which means in baptism, we are seeing people come into membership in the kingdom of God and initiating that membership through the sacrament of baptism. And then along with the word are feeding people um, through the sacrament of Holy Communion. They're receiving the body and blood of the Lord on a regular basis, um, which promotes and enacts the forgiveness of sins all over again and gives us a strengthening of the Holy Spirit as we come to the table trusting in Jesus. But where it gets into difficulty and challenges when one of these kingdoms tries to control the other kingdom. For example, what if the, the political kingdom, the government, tried to regulate how theology was taught or how specific parts of following Jesus in the real world uh, were or were not to be done um, as a function of the political government? Uh, things would go awry pretty quickly, wouldn't they? First of all, the government would not agree in and of itself on the right uh, theological stance to take. The church itself struggles with this. Um, but secondly, there's a crossing over of philosophies there where the purpose of the right hand or the left hand kingdom, rather, um, is uh, is overshooting 
um, it's, uh, it, it's created bounds, the reasons for its, its existence, trying to get into the theological world. And on the same token, if the church tries to run the government, um, you see all kinds of problems with that because you see uh, theology trying to dictate the way evil is restrained in the world and the way people are bodily and in property terms protected. Um, there's all kinds of trouble when you try to cross over um, the governance of the left-hand kingdom versus the right-hand kingdom. So what we're going to do is study um, a scripture, a section of scripture, a story of um, Peter and John as they're beginning their ministry and as they're beginning to gather a following of people around the word of God and the good news of Jesus. We're going to take a, a snapshot into their story and particularly this section of the story where they're being taken to account by the Jewish leaders of the day, which happens a lot, you know, in the early Christian church as it did with Jesus's ministry. Uh, so what's happening is in this story, this is Acts chapter 5. What's happening is in the story, uh, the Bible says that, that there was a significant amount of people who were beginning to follow uh, Jesus through Peter and John and the other apostles. And, and as Peter was preaching, uh, there's a, a fairly decent amount of people, a large group of people that are, are following him around and listening to the good news of Jesus. And the religious leaders, uh, the Jewish leaders of the day were becoming jealous. And so uh, they, they basically, what they did is they commanded Peter and the other apostles not to preach in Jesus' name. And, um, and what they ended up doing is actually throwing them in what the Bible calls the public jail. So the, the, the one kingdom, the left-hand kingdom, was being used to try to restrain the work of the right-hand kingdom. Can you kind of see that connection? Uh, Peter and the other apostles were thrown into a public jail. And what happened was in the story is they, you know, there, there was nothing that Peter and the apostles could do. So as they were praying one night, um, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and released them and released them with a command. Basically, go back to where you were in the temple courts and continue to preach the good news of Jesus. And so they did that. And we kind of jump into the scripture of that story in Acts chapter 5, starting in verses 27 and 28. And again, this is the message translation. And here's what happened when the religious leaders uh, peaceably had Peter and the other apostles uh, brought back to them to stand account for the reason why, number one, they weren't in jail, and number two, they were continuing to do the work that they had been specifically ordered not to do. Here's what the Bible says. Bringing them back, they stood before them, uh, Peter and the apostles stood before the Jewish leaders, uh, before the high council. The chief priest said, didn't we give you strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name? And here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are trying your best to blame us for the death of this man. Now, first of all, which man? Well, of course, they're talking about Jesus here. And the religious leaders of the day were responsible. They were to blame for the death of Jesus. But that's in the political sense. That's the left-hand kingdom's point of view. In the right-hand kingdom's point of view, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, you and I are, right? Because it's the sins of the world, including the sins of yourself and myself, that put Jesus on the cross. We were the ones who sent Jesus to the cross. God sent his son to the cross to die for your sins and mine so that ultimately we wouldn't have to pay the price in eternal death for our sins. And yet 
the religious leaders are not responding to these circumstances and the idea of Jesus going to the cross from the right-hand kingdom's point of view, are they? They're responding to it from the left-hand kingdom's point of view. They put them in public jail and now trying to avoid um, the, the, uh, the public eye, the public view that the Jewish leaders are somehow to blame for Jesus' death. And the reason for that is probably that the Jew- Jewish leaders are afraid of the political repercussions of that. So the Jewish leaders are very much operating in the left-hand kingdom. You, can you kind of see that connection? Here's how Peter responds to them. This is starting in verse 29 in the message of uh, Acts chapter 5. Uh, Peter and the apostles answered, It's necessary to, and listen to this, to obey God rather than men. Peter says it's necessary to obey God rather than men. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, the one you killed by hanging him on a cross. God set him on high at his side, prince and savior, to give Israel the gift of a changed life and sins forgiven. And we are witnesses to these things. The Holy Spirit, whom God gives to those who obey him, corroborates every detail. So Peter comes back and he answers them from the right-hand kingdom. While they are dealing with him, while the religious leaders are coming at him from the viewpoint of the left-hand kingdom, he answers them from the right-hand kingdom and says, in some circumstances, it is better, it is more appropriate, it is right to obey God rather than people. Now, for us in particular, what kind of application does that have? Uh, we can take a look at, at a, a couple of scriptures on this, and one in particular, I'd like to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. The Bible says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons. Verse 4 says, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. You could even say that this includes left-hand arguments against the right-hand kingdom. The, uh, the Bible goes on and says, We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So the idea becomes this. As we tie in the idea of obeying God by obeying our government officials, up to and including the point where the left-hand kingdom tries to cross over into the governance of the right-hand kingdom, the kingdom of God. That is when we make a separation. That's when we stand apart. And the standing apart doesn't happen through the world's weapons, through weapons of the world, like uh, tweeting on on things on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, things that would defame or slander another person, or physically rising up and gathering Um, people to go uh, and bear arms against someone of a different political mindset or trying to coerce uh, a member of another viewpoint through violence or through threats. Uh, Instead, we use God's weapons. Now, what are God's mighty weapons that 2 Corinthians refers to here? Well, they include, um, amongst others, they include prayer, praying for people who oppose you politically and even physically serving people, um, doing things for people that are kind because we obey God and not because we obey ourselves or other people, showing kindness to other people, kindness that comes from God. And that includes hospitality, being a part of God's hospitality where we open up our homes and or our lives 
uh, to invite people in and serve them in such a way, uh, perhaps through food or, or time and conversation with them or in some other way that shows them we are okay, we are okay and choose to be around them, even in circumstances and situations where we disagree. Ultimately, the idea, and this is another of God's weapons, um, we show respect to people. We honor them as God's creation, as a part of um, the kingdom of this world that God wants to redeem through Jesus. And so ultimately, we do all these things without sacrificing the truth. And this is one of, of God's chief weapons, is the truth. But again, it's not the kind of truth where we're supposed to bludgeon people or beat them about the head with the truth. It's the idea that we quietly, humbly, respectfully share the truth in such a way that God receives the glory for it and people are challenged and grow from it uh, without us having to inflict violence or threat upon people. Now, an example of this, and you might be surprised a bit by the example because Mahatma Gandhi is not a Christian, never was. Um, as a Hindu, he would have ascribed to, um, of course, Hinduism and um, the, uh, the teaching and the presence of, of many gods. And he might have been okay with talking about Jesus. In fact, um, there's some evidence in his writings where he was okay even entertaining the idea of Jesus, uh, perhaps as a, a prophet, another kind of leader sort uh, like himself. Um, but what you find in the practice of Gandhi um, the, the sort of civil disobedience that he taught, the idea of being a respecter of persons with whom you disagree, even to the point of being willing to take on their wrath, their anger against you, and even abuse against you. Um, his uh, embracing of civil dis disobedience and teaching of the values associated with it um, helped lead uh, India to independence uh, back in the 30s and 40s uh, before he was uh, killed for the cause. He was shot uh, and killed uh, as a part of uh, the political change that he brought about there. But what you find as you look at his teachings and look at the way that he taught civil disobedience, they sound very familiar, don't they? They hearken back or they kind of refer to uh, the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus talks about turning the other cheek whenever your enemy approaches you and, and slaps you on one side of the face, you turn your cheek to him. If you know your enemy takes your cloak, then Give me your tunic also. Give more than even what is allowed. And, uh, and the idea of, of resisting an enemy comes down to this. You see evidences of, of Jesus doing this with respect and with kindness with Pontius Pilate, where uh, at one point in, in a private conversation Jesus is having with Pilate, Pilate says, don't you realize I have the ability to you know, take your life or spare it? And then how does Jesus respond? Jesus doesn't threaten with the idea that in a moment he could call down legions of angels upon Pilate and destroy him, turn him into a puff of smoke and wipe him from the face of the earth. He doesn't. He basically just very quietly and respectfully shares the truth with Pilate. And the truth is that there is no power that Pilate has that hasn't been given to him by God. So Jesus shares the truth in a humble, respectful, peaceable, hospitable even way to Pontius Pilate in such a way that perhaps even in the future might change his mind. But he doesn't force the truth upon him. He simply stands up for the truth in a way that is peaceable and respectful toward Pontius Pilate. So the question for us becomes this, what about here and what about now? 
How do we respond when we are challenged? Well, I'd, I'd like for you to, to remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 31. He says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, and I quote, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. In verse 32, he says, then you will know the truth and say this with me, and the truth will do what? Set you free. Let's say it again. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So that then you know the truth and the truth setting you free is directly connected with Jesus, with the person of Jesus. Look at it again. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. So what is the truth? The truth is not the political truth of the day as we see it. The truth is Jesus. The truth is a person. It is Jesus and everything he teaches, all the leadership he can give us as uh, the head of the kingdom of God is the truth. And the truth can be used by us. The truth can be used by us to uh, rise above a political situation in which we find ourselves. For example, if we find ourselves in a situation where a local municipality or a state is uh, trying to compel us to go against our faith, then we can simply take the opportunity to peaceably disagree with that situation and perhaps even not um, engage in it, not participate in what the law is compelling us to do. And when asked for a reason, give the reason as uh, a function of our faith. Here is what I believe. I believe that Jesus is Lord of all and said to do things this way. And in doing that, what we're doing is we're taking the opportunity to share the right-hand kingdom while caught in an opportunity involving the left-hand kingdom. Do you see the dynamics there? It's the idea that, yes, we are free people, and yes, we have been given freedoms, but what we don't do is we don't abuse our political freedoms. We use them. And there's a big difference. We don't abuse our political freedoms. We use them. We allow the Holy Spirit to show us ways to use our political freedoms and the discourse that we find ourselves in, in many cases, with people that uh, disagree with us, who disagree with us. Use those situations, allow those situations to be used by God to share something of the right-hand kingdom. This you find in the practice of uh, Peter and the apostles before the crowds. This you find in the practice of Jesus. This you find in God doing things through the political systems of the world by bringing attention to the right-hand kingdom all throughout history. And for us, that's an amazing opportunity to share the good news in such a way that we demonstrate it. We not only talk about it, but we demonstrate it. And ultimately, like we said a couple of weeks ago, what we're demonstrating is peace that passes understanding, a peace inside. No matter how people vote, no matter who's in office, no matter what the laws of the day are in the civil world, in the political world, the peace that passes all understanding is ours through Jesus. And that peace helps lead and guide us as we vote, as we participate, and as we obey the civil law insofar as it does not compel us uh, to go against uh, God's law, which God's law now for us is who? It's Jesus. We trust in Jesus. He covers us in front of God's law and over God's law. And 
He helps us to navigate through the political law of the day. So my hope is this is an encouragement to you, especially as we continue to see momentum building for a new presidential campaign. No matter what the campaign of the day is, we know that ultimately our first citizenship is where? It's in the right-hand kingdom. It is following Jesus in the real world, right? And on the same token, we participate and we don't withdraw. We participate and engage in the left-hand kingdom. And when we find ourselves at odds with the left-hand kingdom, we rely on the Lord of the right-hand kingdom to give us the words to speak and to show us the actions to take. In doing so, we draw attention and we draw glory to God, ultimately, for the purpose of people becoming members of that right-hand kingdom along with us. Would you pray with me? Uh, Dear Jesus, thank you so much for being king of the kingdom of God. Thank you for being a king who is approachable and one who sets the pace and sets the tone through scripture for how I am to engage in the left-hand kingdom. I'm not called uh, to separate myself from it, which is a temptation for me. I admit that. But I'm called to fully engage, to vote, to choose a political position and vote for that, and to participate in the paying of taxes, to work my job and to pay my bills, to be a good citizen of the United States of America or wherever I live. And on the same token, remember and not forget my citizenship in the right-hand kingdom, the kingdom of God. Whenever, God, those two kingdoms come into conflict, help me to remember that you, Jesus, have overcome all things, including the left-hand kingdom. So give me the words to speak. Give me the right frame of mind. Give me a heart that is used by God to bring light into a dark world that sometimes puts too much faith in the political kingdom. The kingdom on the left, which says, trust in this leader and vote for this leader. Instead, we trust in you, Jesus, and we vote knowing full well that you are the God who put in place uh, the principalities and those kingdoms and those governments that now reign temporarily on earth. Until you come, we trust you, we follow you, and we look to you for guidance as we participate in the political world. In your name we pray and together we say, amen and amen.